Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Whitney Lane, Duke Plastic Surgery residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today we are continuing our Flapcast series, which is designed to review the basic anatomy and surgical approaches to common flaps used in plastic surgery. Today, we are joined by Dr. Evan Matros. Dr. Matros received his medical degree from the University of Chicago, Pritzker School of Medicine. He then completed his residency training in plastic and reconstructive surgery at the Harvard Plastic Surgery Residency Program. He went on to complete his training in microsurgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, where he is now an associate professor of surgery and director of the microsurgery fellowship. We are excited to welcome him today to our podcast to discuss the prefibula flap. So let's start with a quick review of some regional anatomy. First, it's important to keep in mind that there are four compartments of the leg, the anterior, lateral, superficial posterior, and deep posterior. All these compartments will be encountered during elevation of the flap. As far as the flap blood supply goes, uh, the main blood supply to the fibula is based off the perineal artery. This flap can be raised as bone only or osteocutaneous or even osteomyocutaneous. In terms of length of the bone, we can typically get about 15 centimeters, although larger segments have been reported. And remember, we typically want to leave at least six centimeters of bone proximally and distally in order to maintain knee and ankle stability, respectively. And then proximally, you want to preserve muscular attachments to the fibular head and avoid injury to the common perineal nerve. Now we bring in our expert, Dr. Matris, to talk a little bit more about his experience with the free fibula flap. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. It's an honor. Um, just to get it started, um, what are just some of your general thoughts on the free fibula flap? Is it something that you commonly use in reconstruction? And what do you think are some of the major advantages and disadvantages of this flap? Well, I think, you know, it's probably the most important question you're going to ask me today. Um, it really is the uh, bony uh, workhorse flap. Uh, there's really, and there's so many advantages to it and the, and the flexibility. It is sort of like, you know, that the ALT for uh, bone flaps, you, you can make it do whatever you need it to do. So first of all, you know, you have to compare it to its uh, competitors, right? So when you think about the other bone flaps and there are four other, three other major bone flaps, the scapula, the, the radius flap and the uh, iliac crest, you know, and they all have pluses and minuses, but when you weigh the pluses and minuses, you're gonna come out ahead in the majority of categories uh, with the fibula flap. So let's just take a few examples. Okay. Um, so pedicle length. Okay. The only other flap that's going to give you adequate pedicle length would probably be an osseous, uh, uh, forearm flap, uh, from the radius with a, a skin Island. So that'll give you, uh, adequate, uh, pedicle length, uh, comparable to the fibula, but the iliac crest is going to have a short pedicle. Um, and the scapula is going to have a relatively a short pedicle, unless you're using the scapula tip, uh, which is based on the angular artery, and then you're going to have a uh, significantly longer pedicle because that's based off the thoracodorsal system. And with that, you can get up to you know 10 centimeters or something like that. The problem is the scapula tip is pretty thin, and it's not great for a bone flap, right? And so um, if we're thinking about bone, well, what do we want bone to do, right? We want bone to be strong, right? And so this is a really you know uh, good piece of bi uh, bicortical bone. Um, and so when you think about that, that's what makes it so good for uh, extremity reconstruction. I don't think anyone else is using any other, uh, you know, uh, bony flaps for, uh, you know, long bone reconstruction. 
uh, it's obvious that the fibula is a, is a long bone, although not our primary long bone in the upper or lower extremity. Um, so in terms of the bone quality, it's, it's, it's much better than uh, all of the other bone uh, flaps. It gives you more bone length. It gives you more pedicle length. Um, my specialty is in head and neck reconstruction. So I think of it as the, one of the best bone flaps for osseointegrated implants. Um, so the bicortical uh, nature of the bone allows for a stabilization of osseointegrated implants, which is not possible with a radius flap. It's not possible with a scapula flap, although people do put mini dental implants in scapula uh, bone. Um, you can put osseointegrated implants into the iliac crest. But then again, the negative is um, the really uh, short uh, pedicle length and the uh, donor site morbidity. The uh, other advantages are the number of osteotomies you can make with a um, fibula flaps. So it has uh, dual uh, blood supply. So by that, we mean that it has axial blood supply from the perineal artery, which you guys already mentioned, but it has periosteal blood supply along its entire length. Um, so it has uh, endosteal and periosteal blood supply, which allows you to make really an unlimited number of they use single piece. Um, you can maybe get one osteotomy out of an, uh, a radius flap. And with a scapula flap, you can maybe get two pieces out of lateral border of the scapula based on the uh, circumflex scapular, uh, and then maybe uh, a third piece uh, off the uh, angular branch at the tip. So, I mean, we routinely do three, four, and even five potential osteotomies uh, for, uh, or with a, a scapular flap, I mean, with a, a fibula flap because of this, this, this dual blood supply. Um, so that's really quite interesting. Um, so there's some other little finer details, which you guys, you know, may or may not find interesting. You can use it as a flow, a flow through flap, which I guess you can do with a radius flap, right? You could take the distal perineal artery, um, and, uh, use it as a flow through. You could do that with a radius flap as well, because the distal aspect of the radial artery where you ligated at the wrist could be used, not possible with the iliac crest. You could actually use the scapula flap as a flow through because you would use the, um, you would use the, uh, subscapular system as the inflow and the outflow would be like the thoracodorsal, uh, which is kind of something crazy to think about. Uh, and I never really thought about it before. But actually, I just had a really uh, complex case. And you could because, I mean, the angular comes off the thoracodorsal, right? And then you could just hook into the thoracodorsal where you would ligate, for example, the latissimus muscle and use that as a flow through. I mean, that'd be pretty kind of nutty and crazy. So, you know, I guess, you know, on further thought, it wouldn't be the only one you could use a flow through uh, for, but it is kind of uh, nice to think about. Um, some other things, uh, other properties of the... Uh, fibula flap that make it interesting or the number of skin islands. So, you know, that you could make with it. So for example, you could at least, um, you know, based on the number of perforators, uh, you could make two independent skin islands. Um, I think that'd be kind of hard to do with a, a, a radius flap. And I think um, you could do it with a scapula flap in the following fashion. So with a scapula flap, how could you get two skin islands? You could take a transverse scapular skin island. So not a paris, uh, 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 a parascapular skin island, but make it off the horizontal branch. And then the second skin island would come down and be all, a TDAP. Hmm. So normally when I make a parascapular flap, I make it along the lateral board of the scapula and I make it vertical. And that encroaches on the TDAP territory. But if you took a parascapular flap 
transversely off the transverse branch of the circumflex scapular system, you could then distally off of the thoracodorsal without overlap, take a Tdap flap. So you could get two skin islands with a uh, scapula flap, um, but you can much more easily get two skin islands um, with a uh, fibula flap. And then also is the ability to harvest um, to harvest it with a muscle. So this is called the OPAC flap. And I think Mingwei uh, uh, Chen from um, uh, Changgung coined the OPAC. So it's osteocutaneous. It's the acronym is OPEC or OPAC flap. But essentially what he's doing is taking the proximal perforator and the proximal perforators go into the uh, soleus muscle and the gastrocnemius muscle, so higher up in the leg, and they come off near the origin of the perineal artery. And so you can harvest it as a myocutaneous uh, flap from that area or just a piece of muscle only, uh, in addition to the uh, skin island distally. So you wouldn't quite call that a chimeric flap, right? It's not different named origin vessels, but you know, you would have all those different components, right? You have bone, you'd have skin, mm -hmm. Um, and then you'd have muscle. The problem with the OPAC flap is that the muscle was sort of, when you think about it for head and neck reconstruction, the muscle is very high or towards the origin of the perineal artery. And that usually means that that piece of muscle is down in the neck. So that might be good for someone that has heavily radiated neck, but it wouldn't be used anywhere sort of where the, the, the formal mandible reconstruction would be necessary. So I don't find muscle that useful uh, with the uh, fibula flap uh, in this sort of, you know, um, myocutaneous, osteocutaneous uh, flap. Uh, so I usually just do it, at, harvest it as a, uh, you know, an osseous, osteofascocutaneous flap with the overlying uh, skin islands. Um, the volume of skin you can get with it isn't as much as some other flaps. So um, you can get a uh, pretty large skin island with a scapula flap. I mean, you can you know, that's the chimeric, you know, the center of the chimeric universe is either the scapula flap or the, the groin, right? And so uh, I think if you really want a real chimeric flap, that's where you should go. And you can get a huge skin island and muscle uh, with a, a scapula flap. And so I think the, uh, the um, uh, fibula flap would fall short in sort of that, that area. So that's just a few thoughts. Uh, some of them more. That was, a, that was a lot of thoughts. Thank you. That was a, a ton of information, but helpful to hear kind of how you think through the different options and, and what you can get from each flap. So, so thank you I, for that. I apologize if that's sort of like stream of consciousness, but it's just. No, no, that was great. <laughs> um, all right. Let's take maybe a, a step back and just talk about preoperative evaluation. Um, do you get imaging for all your patients? Do you think you need to get a CTA? The answer is you don't have to, it depends upon the case. So let's take long bone reconstruction, right? You don't need a skin island. So, okay, so th that's pretty straightforward. I mean, you still have to be concerned about peronium magna um, as an anatomical variant. Usually you can detect that on physical exam because there won't be, you know, there won't be all of the typical pulses that are present in the lower extremity, but you know, it's certainly embarrassing to find yourself in the middle of an operation um, and either to devascularize the leg or not know that you can't take it from there. You know, in this day and age, you know, everyone's like, we want to cut cost, but the, these scans are not as expensive as they were 
And I, I think information is, is, is knowledge and power. And I, I think getting a scan is really not that, that big of a deal. There are, just so you guys know, um, beyond the vasculature, which is really nice with a CTA, one of the benefits of, um, of CT scans is that they're really the best at defining bony anatomy. But there's some interesting papers that just came out recently by uh, Samir Mardini from uh, Mayo, where they call it black bone MRI. And normally you actually can't image the bone very well uh, with MRI, but this technology that they're using over there um, allows them to really get a better sense of the bone quality. Uh, so I'm just sort of throwing that out there for those people that are interested in learning about MRI and bony anatomy. You can actually, this, this technology is allowing it. So it's called black bone MRI, but I do get CT angios um, for all of my head and neck patients. Uh, whereas I do think if I had a skimp somewhere, it would be on the orthopedic patient where you just need a piece of bone and it's not as critical. The reason I'm getting CT angios for uh, head and neck patients is because I do uh, virtual surgical planning. And we've gotten to the point where we offer virtual surgical planning. Well, excuse me. We've gotten to the point where we offer uh, immediate dental implants in all of our patients. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we've learned, and we have a publication that's pending on this, is that the shape of the fibula is very different uh, towards the fibula head uh, than compared to when it's at the ankle. So in sometimes it might be triangular in shape. In other areas, it might be pentagonal. And so now you sort of think about, okay, well, now I'm going to put in dental implants. You can imagine the trajectory of the dental implant uh, and how it would enter the bone be very different if it was pentagonal versus triangular. So we really want to know when we're doing immediate dental implants, what the shape of the bone is going to be that we're going to use in the reconstruction. And so obviously it's going to be the distal third of the lower extremity um, where, the, where the skin perforators come out and usually we're performing vestibular plasties. And so that's the same area where we're going to want to um, use the bone. And so we want to know the shape of the bone where we're going to use it. So how does this translate into the question about CT angio? Well, if I know where the perforator is coming through on the CT angio, then I know what the shape of the bone is going to be. I know where the, that, that's where the skin is going to be that I'm going to use. And then when we do the dental implant planning, we know exactly the shape of the bone and, and the trajectory that we need with the, with the cutting guide or the uh, dental implant guide. If you go to the operating room and you don't know where your perforator is, you can take the cutting guide for the fibula. You can slide it up and down and it may not match the trajectory of the dental implant uh, slots that are on the guide. And you can have a misfire or the poor angulation. And it only takes a couple of degrees of being off with dental implants to really not have a very good functional reconstruction. So as you get more detailed and more refined with your reconstruction, and, and for us, you know, dental implants is a big part of our center now, we really find it necessary to have all of this additional preoperative information so that we have the accuracy of using the correct anatomical area of the bone in the reconstruction, uh, as opposed to guessing. And when I first started doing fibula flaps and virtual surgical planning, I would take the fibula guide and I would slide it up or down wherever the perforator is. No problem. But if you're gonna use dental implants, you better know where it is because the angulation of the uh, dental implant slot would vary depending upon the shape of the bone. That was a long answer to that. And it's hard to understand why it's so important, but you have to think of all of this as chess and you have to think about it in reverse and build backwards. And so the scan is, is gonna give you that, that final piece of information where you're gonna use and then you work backwards. 
Um, and then you can do all the planning from there. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. I don't know if Whitney, have you seen us use digital implants here on our initial reconstruction? I haven't seen it. We don't typically, um, we, I've never seen us use get dental implants at the time of reconstruction, uh, especially because we um, send all those patients to a process like a prosthodontist or oral surgeon following surgery. But that does, whenever I've done a free fib, we move that cutting guide up and down to find yeah. what we like the best. And it really doesn't pertain to anything that we were seeing per se on our surgical planning. It's just the cuts are done um, on the surgical planning. So if you get really nuanced, let's just take it, let's just forget about dental implants for a second, right? So you, you have a virtual surgical plan, right? And there's osteotomy angulations on the fibula. But if the fibula is shaped differently, okay, from where it's planned, it's not actually gonna adapt the right way you follow what I'm saying? It won't adapt to the bone the right way. And then when you do your cutting osteotomy. Like, why isn't it fitting? Yes. You've all been in that not, situation. It may not fit. It may not snap fit to the fibula well. Or when you're done with your osteotomies, they don't line up. Because it's not the same. The angles don't correspond to the shape of the bone that was it intended to be. Yes. And then we um, have to go up to the mouth and do a little extra fitting to get it to fit the, yeah. Exactly. The other thing I just want to point about dental implants just while we're on the topic is the reason we, particularly in a cancer center, now you guys may have some trauma patients as well as head and neck cancer patients. The trauma patient is a different story, right? You have tons of time, okay, with the trauma patient to work on their dental implantology and the prosthodontics. In a cancer center, these patients are going to get radiated. And we know that dental implants aren't going to heal well if the patient, if the bone has been radiated. So our our workflow is such that we want to get the dental implants in as soon as possible to allow for six weeks of osteointegration prior to initiation of radiation. Because once they're radiated and you're going to try and put in dental implants, it's going to be like, you know, anything else. It's not, you're not going to have good success. So we feel that that's our secret sauce or our special sauce, if you will, is to get them in early. And the only way you can do that is um, to uh, do it at the time of the uh, fibula flap. Another, um, speaking of kind of just preoperatively thinking through patients, um, another um, group of patients that we had questions about is those that have both intra and extra oral defects. So if you're seeing a patient and you know that you're going to have an intra oral and extra oral defect, how do you think through those patients preoperatively? Is that someone who you would consider doing two skin islands for, or do you prefer doing two separate flaps like an ALT plus um, a free fib? You know, it's a good question. And a few, a few insights. So if someone comes in with a fungating tumor, right? Cause that's what you're describing. It's a through and through defect, right? By the way, let's just be clear. And I don't know all of the head and neck cancer staging, but if it involves your bone, if it invades your mandible at stage four, okay, that I know. Okay. So now you have a patient with stage four cancer plus, right? It's not, we're not intraoral defect you know, remove some teeth, you know, maybe take a little floor of mouth, little buccal mucosa. Now this patient has a locally advanced cancer, okay? You know, God knows you're even gonna not have like dermal metastasis in six weeks, okay? And you're like, okay, I'm gonna do a fibula. Oh, and by the way, let me throw in an ALT, right? So, you know, these cases have to be worthy of the time and the effort, okay? Your goal is to get that patient out of the hospital ASAP. Okay. And so, you know, second free flap, you're going to have enough vessels, you know, how are you going to hook it up? You're going to hook them in series. You're going to hook them in parallel. You meaning two, 
in series means it's going to be, they're going to be uh, daisy chained to one another versus in parallel, meaning you're going to have two sets of vessels in the neck or whatever. And maybe you do and maybe you don't or whatever, right? And then the time it takes, the resources that it's going to take to do the fibula and the ALT. So sure, like, you know, if it has to be done and there's no other way of configuring it, fine. But I limit my life and my patient's lives to the simplest operations as possible. And so if I can fold the fibula, I call it a hot dog. So you're taking the skin island and you're folding it around the bone and make, make a double island out of it and deepithelialize an intervening strip, then that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Now, if you only deepithelialize, if you only deepithelialize a strip, what's going to happen is somewhere the contour is going to get, is going to get altered. Meaning like the external skin is going to be dipped in to where it's deepithelialized because you haven't released it, the skin full thickness, but you know, the, the blood supply is only coming from one perforator at that point. Okay. And you don't want to score all the way through the subdermal plexus. And so the external cheek skin might be a little tethered down if you follow what I'm saying, because you haven't released it. You know, like when we do a deep flap, we incise the dermis all the way around. So it insets into the mastectomy skin flaps better. Well, you don't really want to cut all the way through the subdermal plexus when you only has one perforate. Okay. And so I find that the contour won't sit as well, um, Whitney, as if you did an ALT and it just sat on the top and you had a separate one for the inside. But you know what? Like, I think that you got to be pragmatic and you got to get the patient out of the operating room. Okay. So yes, sometimes I do two free flaps. I try and do one free flap, but let me, let me push you guys on this. So someone asked me, well, you know, two skin islands, you know, don't you always use two skin islands? You know, when you have something like that, are they independent skin islands? Because I just described to you where I deepithelialize, and it's really one island, not really independent. And so when you think about the, the anatomy of the uh, fibula, right, there's going to be perforators. Maybe, maybe you'll have three skin perforators along the leg, right? But it's really interesting to know, right, that the external defect is going to align with the intraoral defect, right? So if you have, a, let's just say you have an anterior defect with two body segments and a central segment and say the fungating portion is anteriorly. That's where the middle of your fibula flap is and you're gonna have one perforator there. And there might be another one over the body segment and another one over the other body segment. But that ain't gonna help you through a through and through defect to have a, a different perforator distally. You follow what I'm saying? I, I don't know if I'm being clear, but the intraoral defect always aligns with the extraoral defect and there's only going to be one perforator because the next perforator is going to be more distally or proximally on the fibula. So it's actually very rare where you can use two different perforators and truly islandize and get that because that other perforator is going to be tethered, yeah. right? It's going to be tethered. And how are you going to get that for the intraoral and the extraoral? Because it's aligned with a different piece of bone. You follow yeah. what I'm saying? Now, if you got rid of that proximal piece of bone and you just had an, you know, the perforator with it and you just, just shelled it out of the periosteum and got rid of that bone and you had multiple perforators and it was a small, you know, didn't need a lot of bone segments, then you could, you could do what I was describing and shift it over. It might kink your main pedicle a little bit, but um, so um, just something to think about. That was helpful. Um, can is that we too complicated? I'm sorry. No, no, that makes sense. I think what you're saying is, you know, it's hard to have two different skin paddles when one they're both attached to different portions of the bone. So how are you going to move them to cover kind of the same area? So, understood. Because the defect is through and through. It's not in two different places. 
That's yeah. right. It'd be different if you had like, oh, hey, I need a little intraoral over here and more distally, I need an extraoral. Right. But that's not ever the case. So <laughs> that's right. Gotcha. That'd be a very odd tumor. Yeah. Um, for our listeners, can you briefly walk through some of your tips on how you elevate a routine, uh, free fibula, your markings, what are your typical steps when you make your osteotomies, all that? So uh, I'll start with some of the points that uh, Hannah mentioned early on. So basically six centimeters proximal and distal. So you save the six centimeters from the fibular head and six centimeters from the uh, lateral malleolus. Uh, and so you don't want to take that bone. Um, and so you want to leave that. Then, you know, the, the, the original information on where the uh, skin perforators come out is really from Fuchen Wei, you know, and there have been subsequent CT angio studies, I think from MD Anderson, they have a nice paper, but the original description is at the junction of the middle and distal third. Okay, so what does that mean? Let's just say your fibula is 39 centimeters, which is about, about average. Okay, so you, you, each third is 13 centimeters. So at 26 centimeters, from the fibular head is where that the perforators are gonna be. And you can mark it and it's almost always gonna be there, okay? So that's number one. So it's the ones that are distal are the ones that are gonna have septal contributions to go to the skin island. There's usually actually one, at least one more that's distal um, to that one at the distal third but it's getting close to where your osteotomy is. And it's pretty reliable over there, but it's usually almost off your, uh, it's almost off your, the bone that you're gonna use. Now, before we sort of get into the dissection, I wanna point out that the, the distal third ones are you know, the ones that are at, the, at that junction, I should say, between the middle and distal third, are, have usually septal and muscular contributions. So this is very, very, very important when you start doing this. The perforator is going to have a branch that goes to the septum, but it's also going to have one that's going to go into the into the uh, regional muscles in the in in the area, like the soleus or the gastroc or something. So you are going to have to divide. Okay, you're going to have to divide a branch to the muscle, but you got to make sure you're preserving the septal one that's going to supply your skin island. As you go more proximally on the leg, what you're going to find, you're going to see some nice perforators. You're going to say, oh, I have a really nice septal perforator. It's up here in the middle of the fibula. And then what you're going to realize, it's going straight back into the soleus and it does not have a septal contribution. Okay. And then if you want to use that, by all means, go ahead. Then you're going to spend the next hour dissecting through, through the soleus muscle. Okay. And what you'll find out, it may not even join the origin of the perineal where you're going to use it. It could go more proximally on the perineal artery mm -hmm. to above the bifurcation of the posterior tibial artery and the perineal artery. And you can follow it all the way up there and you're going to get up there and you're going to say, oh my God, what did That'd I do? That'd be sad. Yeah. It would be sad. So really those distal ones are the septal ones. And as you go more proximally on the leg, they're, um, they're more muscular and they may not have a septal contribution. So then I plan my skin islands. You know, I, you can take a pretty big skin island on, on anyone. And I do think that some people have more reliable vasculature than others. You're definitely gonna lose some fibula skin islands uh, in some patients. It just doesn't, it just doesn't have the perforosome that you really want. Um, but, you know, um, and it's, it's certainly nice to have a couple uh, to your flap and, and save a bunch. Uh, you know, sometimes two, maybe even three. 
Um, but I plan my skin island over the distal, uh, sorry, over the uh, centered around the perforator, over the posterior border. And I take equal 50-50 in terms of the width of the flap. So if it's six centimeters wide, I will take three centimeters anterior to the posterior border of the uh, fibula and three centimeters uh, posterior. Uh, and then I will start my dissection under tourniquet, 350 millimeters of mercury, set it for an hour, do the anterior compartment. If, if the skin island is large enough that it's over the anterior compartment, I will raise it suprafascial until I get over the lateral compartment because you're then gonna compete with the uh, superficial branch of the uh, perineal nerve that's gonna come out over there. Once you get over the lateral compartment, you're not gonna see the, uh, the perineal nerve anymore. And so once I get over the lateral compartment, then I go sub, subfascial and then raise it till I get to the septum. And then I bluntly dissect off the muscles till I see the perforators in the septum. Okay, and, I'm, and that's usually, actually, if you wanna ask me the part of the operation that's most tenuous for me, or most like, like the, the moment where I'm most anxious about the operation, is that's that moment I'm most anxious because I don't know what's happening until I really see those perforators coming through the septum. Then I take off the, lateral, the anterior and lateral compartments, okay? And when I take it off um, the, uh, the anterior and lateral compartments, I, I think of the leg as sort of tight at the top and tight at the bottom. And in the middle, um, things are a little bit loose. So what do I mean? I will score the uh, compartmental uh, septum between the lateral and or anterior and lateral with a, with a bovie. But when I get to the top and the bottom, at the top is where the anterior tibial artery is gonna come off. So usually that part of the, of the uh, intramuscular uh, or intracompartmental septum, I'll actually just push my finger and tear it, okay? As opposed to doing it with the bovie. And I'll do the same thing distally. So proximally and distally do it bluntly, but in the middle do it with the bovie. And the same thing goes when you do the inter interosseous membrane after you've gotten through the, uh, the deepest portion of the lateral compartment. The same thing at the top, you're gonna see the PT and the perineal artery, and you don't wanna be bovine over there. You wanna take your finger and go. <laughs> and that distally, that's where the perineal artery is gonna be. It's gonna be right over there and you don't wanna hit that thing either. Then we go to the posterior dissection we raise it, the same thing would happen. If I'm very far back, I'm gonna raise it suprafascial until I know I'm probably past the uh, lesser saphenous uh, um, uh, vein and the sural nerve. They're a little bit close and you do really wanna identify them um, because you don't wanna obviously back cut the septum from the backside, but basically raise it suprafascial until I get past those and then go subfascial. And it's hard to know. So sometimes, you know, you have to pick them out of your dissection. And then the next thing that I do is, you know, I take off the uh, gastrocnemius and soleus muscles. And here's where I really harp on the residents about their inability to tie. So if you don't know how to tie a square knot, okay? If you don't know how to tie a square knot and you're tying off those vessels back there, those are huge vessels. And if your knot comes off and it's not flat, OMG. I mean, you can sit there and struggle for an hour just, just trying to get those vessels under control. And just to show you that we all make mistakes, um, one time one of our ties came off and it was probably a tie I put there. This is no blame on anyone uh, uh, except for myself. My tie came off for whatever reason and I put a stitch in it. 
okay? Because these are huge vessels and they're, they're bleeding. And I actually wound up putting a, this, the proline stitch through the uh, perineal artery and had to go back later on and understand and fix and correct my mistake or whatever. So those are really huge vessels. Take them one by one, be really, really, really careful. And that's where your surgical technique is most important, okay? Then you make your osteotomies proximally and distally, okay? And then after you make your osteotomies, then what I do is I um, uh, take off the, or divide the FHL, okay? And I always keep the FHL, okay? So I always keep it with the bone, unless I'm doing a pure bony reconstruction, which is only on the maxilla, okay? So if I'm doing like an infrastructure maxillectomy, I want no muscle around because it's barely gonna fit over here in a very small palatal defect, okay? The FHL will not fit. For mandible reconstruction, that FHL is just going to sit here in the lower portion of the neck and just leave it, okay? I mean, leave it with the reconstruction. Don't make your life complicated and have to do this intra, intramuscular dissection to get the perineal artery out. And I, I know it's, it's, it's talked about a lot, you know, and, and Fu Chen Wei always saves the FHL muscle, but I just don't think you need to make your life that complicated until you become, a, a, you, know, uh, you know, as esteemed and as world-renowned as he is or whatever. Um, and then, and then what we do is we, once we divide the FHL, um, we just pull on the bone and it should be pretty free at this point. The only thing that's holding it attached now is the tibialis posterior muscle. And this all comes from training that I learned from Peter Cordero and all this stuff that came down from David Hidalgo, you know, that David described the, the fibula flap for mandible reconstruction, whereas Fu Chen Wei described the fibula flaps, uh, osteocutaneous blood supply. So just so we know a little bit about history. Um, that's the distinction between the two. Um, and then we come up the tibialis posterior right along its median raft face. So the tibialis posterior is a bipennate muscle. And essentially what you do is you grab the FHL and from behind you push the nerves away, the, the tibial nerve and the posterior tibial artery, you push them away. And then you just come up along the tibialis posterior along the midline and the perineal artery is gonna be in your hands. And so as long as you stay in the middle, you'll hit some small side branches, um, but you're not gonna hit anything and you can go really quick. And then you slow down right when you get to the top. When you get to the top and you're coming through the tibialis, uh, the tibialis posterior, you gotta slow down because that's right where the tibial artery, uh, the perineal artery and the tibial artery are gonna bifurcate, okay? And you wanna be really careful. And then a, a, a Memorial Sloan Kettering trick to lengthen your pedicle is you'll find that the artery branches off of the PT more proximal and the veins bifurcate more distal. So if you want to get an extra centimeter or two, what you do is you take the, the lateral vena comitans with the posterior tibial vascular bundle, because it's still going to have the medial vena comitans. You take that lateral vena comitans with the PT ligate it. And then you can follow it up higher because the arterial bifurcation is going to be at least another centimeter up. And so you can get additional length for, you know, like for a subtotal mandible recon, you might want that extra length. And so taking that extra vein isn't going to hurt the uh, leg because you're still going to have the other vena comitans uh, with the PT. Um, and that's just going to get your extra arterial length. And then, uh, and then you, um, and then you plan your um, you know, flap osteotomies. And the only other thing I wanted to talk about in the dissection, the next thing I do before I start working on my bony osteotomies and I do my VSP and my, my fibula cutting guides is I always dissect the fibula, uh, the perineal artery 
off of the proximal uh, fibula. However you want to do it, whether you want to do it subperiosteal, above the periosteum, but essentially what's going to happen is, you know, you have a really short pedicle length. And unless you're having, someone's going to be tugging on the fibula to get it out of the leg. So why not lengthen your pedicle initially and have it sitting outside the leg so you get about six or seven centimeters of pedicle length initially just by doing some subperiosteal dissection. And then it's sitting there on the table right parallel to the leg. And then you can work on everything without tugging on the uh, perineal artery and vein and causing some inadvertent injury. The only other way around that is to have someone retract the entire time, which is completely unnecessary. So to follow up, because I'm assuming this is what you do, um, I'm assuming that you make your, you put your cutting guides on and make your, um, your osteotomies or, or like, you know, more fine cuts, what the fibula is still in situ in the leg. Um, because I've seen attendings do it both ways, either, you know, cut the perineal artery, take it off and do it on the back table versus still doing it in situ. Um, what's your preference? Yeah. I mean, ischemia time matters. Um, I think that, um, like, I mean, if you're using a pre-printed plate, uh, I think that, um, you know, you could probably ligate it off of the leg and the plate, the plating will happen very quickly. So you can make your osteotomies. Uh, outside, you know, after it's been, uh, um, you know, ligated from its source vessels, but you know, there's always something happening. So you never, you, you never know. So I just don't see the, the disadvantage of, of leaving it attached. You can always get it well outside the leg as I've already described. And I make my osteotomies and I do all my plating with it attached uh, to its native blood supply. And, and that's how I've always done it. Uh, I know in other, other countries and other institutions, they do remove it from the leg and, um, and do their osteotomies. I actually like knowing, I've, I've, you know, just like everybody else, we've all made mistakes before. And I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen anyone hit the perineal artery with an oscillating saw, but I have, okay? And I've repaired it in situ. I've actually coupled the vein uh, right there where we've hit it with the oscillating saw and coupled it to itself. Sure would like to know that before I plated it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, and so, you know, something Julian Prebez used to instill in us in Boston is never give up an advantage. And having your flap vascularized to the last moment is an advantage. And so that's how I see it. Yeah, that makes sense. And then for head and neck reconstruction, what are your preferred recipient vessels? And then if you are needing uh, two sets of recipient vessels, um, do you ever need vein grafts? Are you going into the neck? Uh, kind of what's your thought process for that? So first of all, I'm a wimp. I never do two free flaps unless I absolutely positively have to. Okay. Or so, let's say your first choice is out. Then uh, what's your, your go next step? No, I mean, the vessel I like to use the most is the facial artery. Yeah. Okay. And the way we um, were trained uh, by Dr. Cordero was to, um, to get length on the, the facial artery. And the way you get length on the facial artery is it actually is relatively superficial lower down than the neck. And then it actually goes quite deep and it goes underneath the mandible. And then it goes through the submandibular gland. It gives out the submental branch, right? For the sub, for the submental flaps. And then it comes up along the side of the mandible. Okay. And so it's superficial, then goes deep and comes back superficial again. So what we do is we get it out from that deep area and that gives us the length. So how do you get it out? What are the structures that you need to know about? This is a good in-service question. I've, I think I've written this in-service question. <laughs> so, um, so it goes deep to, to three structures. It goes deep to the hypoglossal nerve. 
And then there are two muscles that it runs deep to uh, at the, just beneath the uh, side of the jaw over there. It runs deep to the stylohyoid and posterior belly to digastric muscles. If you divide those two muscles and you watch the uh, hypoglossal nerve, you will get a ton of length and then you will bring the whole thing forward. And what we do is we bring it up and under and anterior to the hypoglossal nerve. And then you can bring it all the way down into the neck and it's sitting there and it's long. You can keep cutting it back until you're happy with it. And that's, that's what we use. So that's my preferred vessel for, um, uh, for mandibular reconstruction uh, or for any basic head and neck reconstruction. I always use the facial artery. Earlier in my career, I used to dissect out other recipient vessels and, you know, kind of have them available. Now I kind of leave them in situ and I kind of don't mess with them too much. I find the superior thyroid artery to be a little bit smaller. So my second favorite, my second favorite, excuse me, would be the lingual. And you can get a ton of length. You can dissect the lingual all the way into the tongue and get incredible length. Um, and so my least favorite is the superior thyroid. Just remember, if you're going to take a lingual, you got to make sure it hasn't been taken on the other side. But the reason I really don't mess with the other vessels anymore is because I've lived long enough to go back on some of my patients, right? You, you know, your, your career goes on and you see these patients again. And, um, you know, you, you want to save those, right? And you don't want to ligate unnecessary things or injure them. So leave them alone. You're going to be back someday. Head and neck cancer comes back, unfortunately. And so leave them alone. Now, one other uh, thing I wanted to address is, you know, when you're sort of talking about maxillary reconstruction and vein grafts. So one of the things about maxillary reconstruction is, especially if you're doing bone, is that there's not a lot of pedicle length sometimes to get down to the neck proper, okay? And so your options for maxillary reconstruction are either the superficial temporal artery, but my favorite thing that I learned in Boston was to access the facial artery right at the angle or the side of the mandible. It's immediately anterior to the mass of the muscle and you can feel it on yourself. Just go like this and you can feel the bowstring. It's the only thing that's over there. Just slide anterior to your masseter and you'll feel it. You never really sit there and play, play with it, but it's, it's literally, it's the only bowstring that's over. That's your facial artery, okay? And if you access it over there, you need your loops, okay? You will see the, um, the, um, the uh, marginal mandibular nerve of the facial nerve. You'll always see it right there at that level. So when you go through there, you go through platysma. As soon as you get deep to platysma, the facial artery and vein will be there. They're usually actually much, much bigger than the, superior thyro uh, than the superficial temporal. So I prefer that because that's always gonna match a perineal vessel or even, or even any other vessel. I mean, who cares? I always wanted every advantage I can. So if I am doing any external cheek reconstruction, I have a choice of going to the superficial temporal or to the facial. It's almost equidistant, okay? And like if I'm doing a radial forearm, for example, for nasal reconstruction, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to the facial area. I'm not gonna go to the superficial temporal. It's always smaller. The only time I go to the superficial temporal is when I'm doing scalp reconstruction. So when you go over here, uh, the facial artery for maxillary reconstruction, you, don't, you almost never need a vein graft. You, you, just, you just don't, because there's just that much, because God made it so, okay? And you can do a fibula flap and get and get to <laughs> the facial artery every time. Uh, even if I do a three-piece, a whole maxilla, I can still get to the facial artery without vein grafting. I've done it multiple, multiple times. So I like using the facial artery over there. You do need to watch for the marginal mandibular nerve. And the last, the last trick I should tell you guys is the marge always bifurcates around the facial artery. So 
In order to get the facial artery out, you usually have to divide it and bring it anterior. It's almost like in, in, uh, laces around it, like both anterior and posterior to the facial artery that Marge does is multiple branches. And to free it, you have to divide it and then bring it anterior to it. You're talking about um, all the vessels that you use in the neck, how do you work with your cancer surgeons in order to preserve those vessels during their dissection? Is that something that you two have worked out as a team from the cancer surgery standpoint and um, reconstructive standpoint, or how did you initially communicate that with them? Teams, teams are teams, right? I mean, there's like high functioning teams and there are, you know, are discordant teams. And you need to be part of a high functioning team. Well, that comes from repetition. It comes from someone understanding your needs. So, you know, you'll often find a lot of times where, you know, there's a disconnect between the plastic and orthopedic surgeon about what's going on and what the needs are for the operation or with head and neck surgeons. So my uh, advice to anyone is to work with the same people and you'll create a high functioning team. Now, not everyone is, you know, sensitive to our needs, um, but I've, found a head and neck surgeon. And I, I, I wouldn't say I work exclusively with him, um, but I certainly, him and I've worked together so much. It's like two peas in a pod. And he just happens to be one of these head and neck guys that's gifted. And he really, he can dissect out vessels the way we do. Um, and really he, he's, he prepares them for me sometimes. Like, it, like, you know, I, I've seen him dissect out the super, superficial, uh, sorry, the uh, superficial temporal vessels, you know, and, and he's doing it just like a plastic surgeon. The other approach is you got to be in there, right? You got to get your belly up to the bar and you got to be in there at least the first couple of times when you're working with these ablative surgeons and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you can't ligate that, that facial vein right at the, at the jugular origin. I want to couple this vein, right? And I need a stump. So don't take it so don't flush. And you got to say the coupler is an end-to-end -end anastomotic device and I can't work end-to-side with it. This is how much vein length I need, et cetera, et cetera. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Matrix. I think that covers most of our questions. That was very thorough uh, and I got a lot out of it. So thanks so much. We have uh, one last bonus question for you. And uh, this will be Whitney pretty soon. But for those applying into microsurgery fellowships, uh, what is one thing you wish all applicants knew before going into the match process? I wish all applicants would take the opportunity to get to know their, their top choice uh, institution. And I would recommend visiting those institutions. Now, I think people have been disadvantaged because of COVID, but I think anyone that comes and spends three days, four days, two days at a center is gonna have a huge leg up um, in uh, getting their first choice. So I think that it's not something I, it's something I want them to know because I think you're making the world a little bit smaller and you're making the interview process for yourself more personal and people will advocate more for you because they'll remember that you came there and you showed that interest. Good advice. And you're, you're definitely right. COVID has uh, put a damper and I know some of our, uh, our residents plans, but yep. Great advice. All right. Thank you guys very much. It's certainly a pleasure and an honor and um, uh, look forward to uh, uh, seeing more of your podcast. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.